0: Welcome all you weirdos, Krokoan refugees, and everyone who enjoys a nice dry heat. Even in these dark days, we remain the mutant member of your Weird Science Podcast family. I am your host, Jason, broadcasting from an undisclosed location deep in the Morlock Tunnels. And back with me once again is our pal Ruben. So hey, Ruben, how the heck are you? Good to see you again. Good. I'm
1: doing pretty well. I'm back from the future.
0: Oh, the, the future is that a spoiler? Is that where these go to? We know you went. You you weren't practicing the red triangle protocols, and you no. ended up forced by Charles Xavier to go through that portal. And, and this is this is news we're breaking here, Ruben. You're yes. in the future, you say?
1: Yes, there's a younger version of me that has gone through wherever the gates take you. Huh? That's but funny. There's because a there's future a- me, which is me, who came back from the future to. Give you all this information.
0: That's great. It's weird because every time I look <laughs> in a mirror, I see a much, much older version of me than should <laughs> ever really exist. But uh, I think that's probably more of a personal problem. Yes. Here in the uh, weird dose of X, we are talking today about just two books. Those will be Children of the Atom, number one, and uh, Immortal X Men, Children of 14. the Vault, number one. Uh, did I write it down wrong? <laughs> uh, well, Jim can decide whether or not. I have it wrong in my notes and everything. Jim can decide whether to edit that out or to leave it in. Let's try it again.
1: The problem is one of those
0: books is terrible, and one of them is potentially terrible, but I love <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to try that again. and we'll, the Listeners will have to find out for themselves which one ends up in the, the final <laughs> file. Today, we'll be talking about just two books. The first one is Children of the Vault, number one, which I know Ruben has been looking forward to for a long, long time, and also... Immortal X-Men number 14. Now, at the end of last week I had mentioned another book. We talked about uh maybe uh, discussing the Ben Percy Wolverine Ghost Rider crossover, but as it turns out It doesn't matter. No, it is not at all relevant to the fall of X. So, it's not it's not a bad book. I know Ruben, you said you kind of enjoyed it, right?
1: Yeah, I'm not the biggest Ben Percy fan, but I read it and I said, "Hey, I like the the vibe was working for me." Um, I'm not a big Wolverine fan, but I thought his interactions with Johnny Blaze were in- interesting enough. There were some things that kinda just made me roll my eyes, like the first time they interact with each other, Wolverine shows up and pops the claws and like of course threatens to cut his neck. I'm like, dude, why? <laughs>
0: he's he's not an easy going west coast kinda guy, that low No,
1: he's that asshole friend that has like a handgun that
0: just likes to point at you. <laughs> like, hey, oh, how's wow. it going? Okay, so uh, there is going to be a Wolverine actual, you know, the Wolverine series issue number 36 is part of the crossover, and we usually talk about Wolverine, so when that comes up, Ruben, you and I will read through it and decide, hey, do we need to talk about this on this podcast, or just give it a quick, hey, this happened. But that's for another time. Right now, there are a quarter of a million mutants waiting for us in that dry heat, but first, Ruben's going to tell us all about Children of the Vault number one.
1: Yeah. I'm going to butcher these names because, as you guys know, I don't really lead these. I mean, that's reviews. a here, so yes. you're, just, you're just doing but what you're supposed to. Children with Vault Number One, written by Dennis Camp, art by Luca Mresca, uh, colors by Carlos Lopez, and letters by Corey Pettit. Oh, and I guess design by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. How did I do?
0: That sounded about as well as I would do. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's good. So, now, the, the cover was actually pretty cool here. We uh, shows many of the main children. I I don't know which name goes with which of the children, but mostly I like the logo. I don't. Is this a brand new logo for Children of the Vault? I think so.
1: I mean, they have never had like their own solo story, so sure.
0: it has this kind of brassy, bronzy, like a bank vault look to it, which I think yep. is kind of cool. Yep.
1: And one thing I'll say here is I haven't been the biggest fan of the more recent character designs for the children. So, I was happy that halfway through this issue, they jump into the vault and come out looking cooler.
0: Oh, neat. I don't think I uh, picked up on that. Very cool.
1: So, um, I think people that have listened to this podcast know I love the Children of the Vault and their idea of them. I think they're really cool as a um, foil to the X Men. You know, they're basically post humans. So, they're not really machines and they're not really mutants, but they're adversaries. And the backstory for these characters is basically there were some environmentalists in the sixties in Ecuador that decided that humanity was like not responding to climate change fast enough to actually save humanity. And so in order to reach a place where we had solutions, they created this sort of like time displaced, um, base where you could go inside and experience, you know, many thousands of years in basically an hour Mm. and you come out. And so the children are these, these people that went in and they've been evolved by this fault multiple times and they come out and they're not really looking at you know the prior versions they're not really looking to save humanity they'd come out sort of prematurely and they're like okay because i think they were going to come out after everything went to hell and just kind of deal with the apocalypse and
0: survive oh, but they they came out kind of half-baked
1: yeah half-baked and so they decide to like basically speed it up you know to wipe out humanity and then you know they can- oh okay bring their society (laughs)
0: out.
1: So anyways, they get defeated. And then I think they have been in and out periodically um, since their kind of first appearance and there've been different sort of takes on them. Um, Most recently, I think we had the stories with um, Laura, Kenny, and Zink and who else was it? Um, Another one of those mutants went in to the vault to infiltrate it and they came out. And oh, I guess just
0: just very recently, yeah. Yeah, we yeah. Saw that. yeah. Yeah. And then we saw that it was Forge who trapped a few of those who had gone out of the vault. He trapped them in these Black Mercy style Krokoan pods that made them dream a dream that they had won when actually they were stuck in a damn pod. But then at the Hellfire Gala, you know, as you may recall, things went kind of poorly for Krokoa there. And I guess when all the muins leave Krokoa, then Krokoa can't rely on their power anymore to keep things going. And that means all the little outposts of Perkoa that run off that energy just stop working. No no backup batteries, any of these things.
1: Yeah. We haven't had a great explanation for that, but I think in Immortal, they talk about it a bit too, where they're saying that Krakoa is going dormant. And mm-hmm. so I can imagine the life support systems or whatever you need to run these dream machines would kind of shut down. But long story short, the kind of strike force of the children, you know, wakes up and they're pissed off and they come out of their their dream pods and um Serafina who is now sort of the leader of the little team she has this power where she can talk to all machines
0: she's like a technopath i guess she's the silvery mercury looking one right
1: yes yeah um previously she did not look like that she was more of like this um like weird techno goth person that had like mm-hmm. cords that could plug into machines Kind of.
0: oh, and I I do see on page 18 when they come back out again, she does look she does look different again. Is that more yeah. like her traditional appearance?
1: Yeah, it's a little closer to it.
0: She's actually wearing clothes in that one, which is nice, and she's yes. got hair. She almost looks like a a grey version of Storm in that picture. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it's a lot cooler. Uh anyway, so she she you know, they break out, they're all pissed, and they're like, you know, I can't believe those mutants did this to us, blah, blah, blah. And then the machines talk to her and she realizes that the mutants kind of got their ass kicked,
0: <laughs> and so yeah, they put it together pretty quickly. What happened to them? There, they yeah. can't get anything past them for too long. Those children. Yeah, they're pretty. They're pretty
1: sophisticated. So, uh, and I guess I'm gonna just. I'm not really gonna go in chronological order here. I'm
0: just gonna kind of do your shtick of you know <laughs> f-
1: following threads.
0: That's how we do it. Yep.
1: Yeah. So you know they come out and realize they don't actually have to fight the mutants. And so I guess they're moving, but they go back into the vault. They're like, Hey, we need to report, you know, to the vault and tell them what happened. The people right, in the vault, right? Just
0: these, these five of them, Seraphina, Capitan, Pharaoh, Luz, possibly Luz and Atomo. I think are kind of our main children characters here. Yeah. They were outside the vault. Now they go back in to say, Hey, this is, this is what the mutants did to us. And that's really kind of the last time in this whole issue. That we see things from the viewpoint of the children of the vault, which kind of surprised me. I thought it was going to be their story from their point of view, but from here on out, it's really about uh, well, a duo. I'm sure you'll be getting to in a moment.
1: Yeah, and we could talk about this. Um, I think you were messaging me about this when we were reviewing it. Hey, not a lot of children in the Children of the Vault issue. That was
0: my first reaction. Yeah,
1: and when I saw that, I was like, oh man, I'm going to hate this story. It's going to make me so angry. But the the other story we get actually intrigued me. So, I'm kind of okay with it. Um, so, the the children go into the vault. And if you didn't know this, there's basically like a million children in the vault. Like a ton of them. They have like a whole society and they're ready to you know, repopulate the earth, I guess. And then we do see them again later. They pop back out. You know, they all look slightly different. And I actually think the team that comes out is not even all the ones that were captured because I don't really see Pero in here. There are
0: six of them who come out and they do yeah. a little bit of, you know, posing in the air. And yep. here we are. And they call themselves now the Children of Tomorrow.
1: Yes, Which and is, so uh, again, because I'm going
0: to screw this up enough times, Children of the Atom, Children of Tomorrow, Children of Everything. Uh, so here, the Children of Tomorrow, that name sounded familiar. I'm sure it's been used a million times. But specifically in Marvel Comics, it was used, I just found this out, in the Ultimate Universe. And in the Ultimate Universe, it was a, com- a concept created by a man named... Joe Nathan Hickman. Ah, he sounds familiar. Uh, and in the Ultimate Universe, the Children of Tomorrow was a dome created by Reed Richards, who, you know, the ultimate Reed Richards, who became the maker, who is still a, a bad guy running around the 616 today and, and doing things in, mostly in Jonathan Hickman books. So he created this dome that he called, you know, for his group called the Children of Tomorrow, and he went inside it with his group and nine hundred years passed inside the dome when five minutes passed outside the dome, so I guess the the maker did go through a process a lot like the, the children of the vault so yep, it seems, uh, children It seems important that uh there's this callback to this Jonathan Hickman concept, especially since Hickman is referenced again later on in a data page. So yeah. the writer here, Dennis Camp, clearly has read up on his head,
1: and so they they come out and they basically go public and say, "Hey, we are the children of tomorrow." you know, here's our backstory, right? And I guess they're giving... this a nice opportunity for Dennis to go through and tell people, if you don't know anything about these characters, here's their backstory. Um, and it's their backstory,
0: they, but it's a very... I don't know if it's... I'd call it a sanitized backstory, but it's presented yeah. in a very, very positive way. Yeah, uh, so they here, come out and they, help they you.
1: talk about being altruistic. Yes, exactly. We're here to save you from your ecological disaster that you're creating. And... Then they, they basically decide to start implementing their future tech around the world and start now, solving the world's talk problems. about this
0: first announcement for a second, because to me, it seems like a very, we've had a couple of these, a direct parallel to that first speech that Charles Xavier gave to the world way mm-hmm. back in House of X, mm-hmm. and because this is Seraphina speaking to the whole world and people are hearing it. In, let's see, Ecuador and Brazil and Syria and all these places. And she's telling them, Hey, the world has changed, which is just what Charles Xavier said. Yeah. But she's not telling them, know, while you slept, we got more powerful and, and we're in charge now. She's telling them, uh, specifically, you are our fathers and mothers. We yeah. are your children. Uh, our message to you is, Hey, we have all this stuff that we want to give you. We have drugs to, to heal your, your, your medical problems. We have these technologies to solve hunger and, and homelessness, kind of like yep. Forge wanted to do at the. Yeah, ballot. exactly.
1: That's what I was thinking. So they basically replaced Forge's gift
0: with their but own. But at no time in here do they say, oh, by the way, you're going to have to buy these things from us, and your government's going to have to be nice to us. According they to the they don't even claim to be, be purely your free gods. gifts. Yeah, they no, don't they come don't out and say, you you're gods, gods now. <laughs> so they are presenting themselves as like a much, much less problematic version yes. of what the mutants <laughs> wanted to do, which is a fascinating idea.
1: Yeah. Which is a little smarter, right? Maybe you don't want to come out and tell everybody, bow down and kiss our boots. <laughs> <If you laughs> want. I'm sure it
0: felt really good, though, to say those things.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I get I get why it happened, right, with the mutants who have been you know, persecuted forever. Mm-hmm. Children don't have that experience. But, yeah, you could see how the populace could react to this a little bit differently. And so they they start popping up all these, um, I guess, structures, right? These
0: new cities. New they cities, They kind of yep. step in and they do superhero things like stopping giant waves and rescuing people from fires. Yep. Which makes yep. me wonder, like, what do the Avengers think of all this? What do yep. the other superheroes are? This is a... You know, my first semi-complaint, this is a cool concept. Maybe too big. I don't big. know that it, it fits in this world, right? Yeah. This is a fantastic, like an indie concept or yeah. a what-if kind of concept, but there's so much going on in the fall of X, I don't know how this fits in. Like, for instance, we have one panel of Orcus, yeah. and there we have uh, Dr. What's-His-Name, the guy with the funny goggles. Oh, Yeah. Devo. Yeah, whatever is is. Dr. Devo, right. Yeah, and he says, you know what, uh, yeah, we're going to keep an eye on you children, people, but we're not going to do nothing about you right now. Yeah. which kind of like little, that, a too. Little too uh, a little too convenient. But I understand okay. why he does it.
1: Two, re- two things to say about that. Go for it. It did seem a little convenient, but then later we get an explanation about why, another explanation for why people might be so sympathetic to hmm. accepting okay. this. Okay. And uh, we'll hit on that in a second, but Um, I did like the idea just generally, I kind of accepted it at face value to begin with, which is, you know, you start something, you need to finish it, right? And they feel like Orcus feels like it's got its boot on the throat of mutants right now, right? And why would you stop with that? Why would you pivot? Especially if these people don't immediately look like a threat to you. But I love the fact that here in this issue, we see Orcus and the children are not going to be allies, Mm -hmm. or at least they have different agendas.
0: Well, I'm curious to see where that goes. Yeah. So, so, so now we kind of get introduced to what turn out to be the two main characters of this book, right? Yes. More than the, uh, yep. more than the children.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we get the real story. I, I guess maybe what I'll do is um, I'll hit on the before we get to that. I'll hit on the part that I really didn't like. So we get a quick little interlude it's in southern Chile with this new human, who's what, Rodrigo
0: Munez. Munoz. Munoz, Munoz.
1: yeah. And I don't understand this part, so he's basically in some lithium fields and he sees how crappy it is and how unhealthy it is. Yeah, this is
0: very much the uh, social conscious part of the book, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but so far we don't see where this kid fits into the story. I mean, the lithium fields from where they they mine lithium in parts of the world are a real thing. I don't know why he's going and drinking the nasty, glowing <laughs> yes. yellow water from there. Does he not? I mean, it could be that there is no other water. I don't know, but it's not really yeah. set up. Yeah, but I, I think like the this idea is a little
1: weak, the way it was handled. And
0: the best I can get from this is that the children are un- so the mutants, when they you know, burst forth and said, We're in charge now, they very much dealt with governments and corporations mm. and people at the top of the ladder and the children at least seem to be trying to present themselves as going directly to the most needy people in the world and elevating um, them. So I think he's yeah. supposed to be like a single person we can say, "Oh, he really is, you know, one of the most downtrodden of the downtrodden" and he might be our point of view for how these people are being helped by the children. But we don't yeah. we don't see that play out very much in this issue. I'm sure we'll see him again. In future issues
1: I hope so because yeah, I just it's three pages and then a weird, like heavy-handed social commentary,
0: and I'm just like, okay, I don't necessarily need this. <laughs> but, it is a cool splash page where you see him there in that lithium field with the yellow water, and then this giant floating city that I assume must be the children just flying over his head, the past and the future.
1: So, anyways, then back to the main, the main real core story. So we basically, and this is a little weird, and we can talk about this in a second. We we just cut to a old cable captured by Orcus in some underground research facility without an arm, kind of being tortured. And he talks about how he, he was surprised by Orcus on his base and
0: captured. On his own ship, we're told, yeah. in the narration boxes, which narration boxes shouldn't lie to us, right? A character might speak an untruth out loud, yeah. but if we're being told something in a narration box, we have to take that as, you know until there's a retcon, God's honest truth. Yes. So yeah, we we see an old Cable. So when you see Cable being, who's been captured by Orcas, we think, oh, hey, we just saw that happen. It was an yeah. X-Men number uh, whatever it was, right before the gala. It was like 24. We, saw him, we saw him go into an Orcas base in the Arctic, and he looked much younger then, and that's where he got captured. Yes. So here, you could say, well, he's been tortured, he's been doing his mental things, maybe he ages up. But that in combination of this different story about how he got captured and well i mean there's there's two possibilities right the first possibility is it's just a, an editorial mistake somebody wasn't reading something somebody <laughs> didn't fix something somebody didn't tell the artist the right thing yes and we've got a mistake that's Forget the about. theory that ruben is going with yeah. That's Ruben's that, theory.
1: yes we've seen other times when like in uh x of swords it kid mm-hmm. cable was the cable that was around at the time and or, we randomly see this like splash page of mutants fighting and you get the old cable drawn in. And I was like, what the hell yeah, we're is an
0: amazing Spider-Man right now? They couldn't <laughs> decide on the name of one of Mary Jane's pretend children. And they had to retcon it as, Oh, that was the nickname somebody used, even though it wasn't any kind of a it's really funny. So the other yeah. possibility here, but it's not just a mistake is we have two cables floating around, which is yeah. certainly possible. He's a time trap. We could have a yes. dozen of them even back then in that other x-men number 24 it was uh moira was worried about oh we can't kill this cable that'll just kill that'll just call in more cables to come get us so the possibility of multiple cables is very live and so i'm thinking maybe there's another younger cable still, still captured orcas custom yeah so maybe maybe we'll get two cables and a bishop blowing around this yes
1: which I'm okay with, right? It's kind of a freaky, fun. weird idea, but I'm okay with it. And
0: It's C- it's Cable and Bishop Time Travelers. They've done yes. weirder things. Yes.
1: And it would maybe... I mean, I've, in the back of my mind, had this sneaking question of what happened to Kid Cable, right? Because he basically just... He was there, realized that he couldn't take on Strife on his own, called back the older Cable, I guess stopped himself from killing that older Cable. Right. And then... Said, you're more experienced and able to deal with Strife better than me. I'm going to peace out and yeah, just kind of disappear Into
0: his own future so that he could become the other Cable in some yes. whatever time loop situation. Right? Yeah.
1: And then the younger one came back to try to stop the the Gala, mm-hmm.
0: but was captured.
1: So I
0: guess so this one got this captured is. too. Yeah, well, Whoever <laughs> this Cable is, he definitely, he's about to bust out himself. They say they can only keep him there for like three days. Yeah, which again, three days, maybe religious reference—I don't know—but before yeah. he can even break out himself, we have yeah, this whole violent in. attack, and Bishop yeah. comes in, and I guess Bishop has taken been taken out, you know, Orca's base after Orca's base, all on his lonesome. Yes, and he gets to this one. And he gets a partner in Cable. Yes. And the two of them run off.
1: Yeah. So, a little bit later, and this will be out of order storytelling, but basically they say that from the time of the gala, he has been kind of living on the run, you know, sleeping in alleys, and mm-hmm. he's identified, like, 1,700 Orcus bases, So, he's got a list. Number, yeah. yeah, he's got a list, and he's going to take them all out. But then he sees, like, the children announcement, realizes that he can't really take on and while... The children are around and a problem, and knows that he can't take on the children on his own. And then I guess he somehow, I guess during one of these raids, he must have
0: realized they've captured Cable. And yeah, I mean, we can break that story ourselves. I mean, we saw him doing the Red Triangle thing in the Gala issue. I guess he didn't end up hooking up with those other people like Sink and Laura and Shadow Cat and that group who's now in the Morlock tunnels. So he's off, he went off on his own somewhere. You can imagine, you know, you, you, you break up one Orcus place, you get some of their data, say, oh, they've got Cable over here. Yeah, I, I can see how those dots connect.
1: Yeah. The only problem I have with that is he when he breaks Cable out and they eventually get out of the space, and we'll talk about the fight before then, but Cable does like a little like, hey, I'm going to scan your mind to see what hell's going on. And he sees basically everything that happened to the Hellfire Gala, including Xavier on Krakoa being sad. And I'm like, well, uh, if Bishop didn't sync up with everybody. How would he know that?
0: That's a, that's an excellent point I hadn't noticed. So, I mean, the, we understand the point there is we don't need to do a whole scene of Bishop explaining the Hellfire Gala to this cable. So we just can assume, okay, assume these guys know everything that happens. Yes.
1: Yeah. Which is fine. I mean, yeah. maybe, maybe Xavier minds connected to everybody and told them. I don't know. But, <laughs> but anyway, it kind of irks me. But Yeah. So, back in the base, they they break out. They're, like, sort of shocked. And they're like, why would you rescue me? You know, like, and it is a big deal. So, I'm going to do a quick little aside. Like, here's the convoluted history of these characters. So, they're both both time travelers, right? Sure. So, Bishop is from a timeline that's, like, 80 years in the future. And in that timeline, Xavier had been assassinated by um, a traitor within the Mm X-Men.
0: And... Cable is just to remind people in that timeline the son of Cy- uh, cyclops and jean gray and he's been sent into the future because he has this techno organic virus that they can only control in the future so yeah. that's why he's there.
1: Yes, yeah. so I think Cable's further than, than Bishop, but Bishop is so 80 years in the future. He's basically lives in a refugee camp and at some and basically he lived there because there was some mutant that Massacred a whole bunch of humans and humans freaked out, bought into the Sentinel stuff, created these concentration camps, put all the mutants in the concentration camps. So there's a rebellion during that timeline, where some humans sympathetic to the mutants kind of decide, let's work with the mutants and overthrow the Sentinels. And they do. And so then it's sort of a cohabitating society. And they start up this military organization, or kind of like a police military organization, Bishop ends up joining that group. And... They're hunting like this serial killer mutant called Trevor Fitzroy, I think was his name. Um, And that guy goes back into the past, which is our current time—well, the nineties timeline for the X-Men. And Bishop follows him Mm -hmm. to hunt, you know, this serial killer guy in the past. And so, in the nineties, he has some kind of like early conflict with with Cable. So at first, um, Bishop is. Because he knows about Xavier getting assassinated, right, in his timeline. Sure, He's like, I'm going to protect, I'm going to stay in the past and protect Bishop. Or sorry, protect Xavier. And Xavier gets shot by who he thinks is Cable, but it's actually Strife, right? Because Strife is the clone of Cable. Right. And so then and he this goes is, this after... Girl,
0: by the way, is a, a John Byrne storyline in the early 90s uncanny.
1: Yep. Yeah. So he goes after the original Cable. They get in this huge fight, right? And I guess they, you know eventually realize the mistake and they team up and fight Strife. Then a little bit later, right after the M-Day event, um, Hope Summers gets born. And he wrecked. Um, well, Bishop believes that Hope is the mutant that kills all the humans, which leads to the creation of those concentration camps. Mm, okay. And, and so, Cable,
0: of course, is famously like a father figure to her. Well, no, this
1: is where that happens.
0: Right. So, I mean, she, this, so she, So, as I recall, Cable, like, Takes hope, the baby, yes. and kind of runs off here and there. in time, even to protect her.
1: Yes, yes, because okay. in Cable's future, which is I think is further than Bishop's future, and there was a a, there was a timeline, yep, in a different timeline. There was a mutant savior that saves humanity and the mutants, and he believes which that hope is that
0: view of hope. Yes,
1: yes, yeah, exactly the same as Exodus. So Bishop tries to take her out to prevent his timeline from becoming reality, and then Cable tries to save her to save the the Messiah,
0: right. So there's been multiple storylines where these guys are always at yes. odds. So yeah, it's, it's kind of run crazy. off into the
1: future and mm-hmm. like in for a while in like the 2000s Bishop becomes a bad guy. He kills like millions of people trying to get to hope. And he's like totally crazed because he's like well, none of this matters because if she's huh. dead, the, these people won't exist. This timeline won't really be a timeline. Wow. And uh, eventually Cable like manages to strand Bishop in like the super future. And then, right before pox pox, they both came back, and I guess they just decided to have a ceasefire. It's kind of weird, but mm-hmm. essentially um hope hope tries to kill Bishop because now she's grown up, right, and then he sure. shows back up, but he apologizes for what he was doing, and I guess decides she's not the one, or who knows, but in any event they're all they're all sort of in a tense alliance, but They've been on different teams, like sort of nonstop, you know, always hmm. staying away from each other so because... It they cares, be it's
0: almost like a high concept 1980s buddy movie to have, you know, oh, you know, this wacky, you know, super conservative guy and this wacky, super liberal guy, and they have to work together. But in this case, it's these two time-traveling enemies who try to kill each other through multiple timelines are, are forced by these events to work together, which is a, a kind, of, kind of nifty concept.
1: Yeah, exactly. And even during the Civil War, they were on different sides, which was interesting. Bishop was on the like mm-hmm. pro-registration side, and Cable was on the Secret Avengers side. So, they okay, always have them so at odds.
0: These two guys are working together now, and they, they end yeah. up walking through uh, Hell's Kitchen, New York City. I don't see any Daredevil sightings. Well,
1: I, but, before uh, we get to there, okay. quickly, as yeah. they're escaping, there is another scene where we see... A mutants doing some pretty rough stuff to Orcas people, <laughs> very Kitty pride esque. So Cable, like, mind whammies a whole goon squad into thinking they're like secret oh, mutants, yeah. and they—that yeah, was
0: part part of the escape. Yeah, it makes makes yes. the uh, yeah, it makes the goon think they're actually. It actually reminds me mostly of the. Oh, I'm going to say your name right again, Fire Star. Oh yeah, where, yep. where she wasn't an Orcas turncoat, but they made everyone think she was where these goons were not really working for Krakoa, but Cable makes them think that they've been sleep raging for Krakoa the whole time. Which is, again, again, you can tell that Dennis Campier has read a whole lot of the Procoan era and is taking little bits of it and putting kind of half twists on it, which is fun.
1: So then, then they get outside and they jump on a motorbike, and then Cable tells Bishop where like one of his secret stockpile bases is, and they go there and Cable gets a new arm and new gear. Very reminiscent to his, Rob Liefeld's
0: original look, but sort of modernized. Rob Liefeld, very controversial in the slack these days. <laughs> I don't, I'm not so taking a picture aside, but yes. uh, Rob Liefeld, yeah, big, uh, big Cable guy. Not the creator of Cable, but written a lot of Cable stuff. So yeah, so they end up here in this safe house which is, the front of it looks like a florist called Dayspring, which I don't know a whole lot about Cable, but I know that's like a last name he's used and kind of an alias. So that's a little wink-wink Cable little bit there. And of course, behind it, it looks like a super techno time-traveling Batcave situation. So they get all cleaned up there, and they, they talk about what's going on with these children, and... uh Cable sees something weird going on in Bishop's mind, and this is the other like super high concept Grant Morrisony part of the issue. That I'm not going to say I dislike it, but when, when big meta-fictional, metafictional Grant Morrisony stuff pops up, I get a little nervous because that stuff can go wrong in a hurry. Yeah, so you have to handle this. You have this to handle
1: this well, thing. or it could be terrible. But the, I, I, I felt like he did a good job here. And this is why I'm probably more positive on this issue than you. So, basically, Bishop's like, hey, there's something weird with the children. And he's like, what, what are you talking about? And he's like, I kind of trust them. And he's like, okay, well, don't you believe in change, right? And, you know, they go into the vaults and come out. You know, maybe they're not so power hungry as they were the last time we fought them, which I thought, one, that's really cool, right? Like, maybe they actually could come out and not be the same villains they were, right? right? Mm-hmm. Sure, they get evolved, right? They've got a million years since the last time we saw them. And they all look it different, right? It does make right?
0: sense. Maybe they will turn out to be, you know, actually trying to help.
1: Yeah, which I think would be a totally crazy twist, right?
0: How that would make this Marvel Universe work going forward? Because it would change the whole Marvel Universe, which makes yes. me skeptical yes. it, that it's going to happen. Yeah, it's certainly not, right? This is going to be Just them. from a comic book reader point of view, you don't expect the whole world to suddenly be perfect.
1: But it's an okay thing for these characters to say, right? It's like, it's a, a conversation. And then I appreciate that Bishop self where he's like, well, here, that's the problem. Like, I don't trust anybody, right? Not until anybody proves that they're good or bad through their actions, not just mm-hmm. what they're saying. So there's got to be something going on with me. And so Cable does like a deep side scan and identifies like, oh, hey, there's something on your brain. And they look into it some more and basically determine that it's a virus. Yeah, and a,
0: a cool data page on this. And again, these are the fall of X data pages, which look, they've been been torn and scribbled on and crumpled up. So it's a, a different look to them. And we're told that this is some sort of a conceptual virus, that they haven't seen it before, but it has some similarities to other things they've seen before. So I'm just going to list the references that they give here on this data page. The thing that it's most similar to is something called the All God, which is a religious virus that appeared in a Wolverine Dark Reign tie-in book of all things in 2009. I think it only appeared in that one issue. Uh, the next thing it's similar to is Hexis, the Living Corporation. Now this is an actual Grant Morrison concept created by Grant Morrison himself in the Marvel Boy series. From the year two thousand. Another thing it's kind of like is the techno organic virus that Cable has, and that Storm had, and that giant sized Storm book back in twenty twenty. Those oversized ones that had like big artist names on them. the clear my throat here. And the last thing that it kind of resembles, and this goes super extra double meta, it's similar to something called Hawk's Pox, Hawkspox. H A W K S P O X. Now obviously that's a reference to the Hawks Pox, what we fans call House of X, Powers of Ten. Yes, that's uh, so went over
1: my head the first time I read it, and then <laughs> I finally got it the second time. What I was you like, see it what goes, the hell is oh, this? Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. says,
0: and this is a direct quote, created in a lab by mad scientist-turned-author Joseph Nathan Hawksman, which is basically Jonathan Hawksman, Jonathan Hickman. It yes. says it was created in the year 3019. House and Powers were 2019. Yeah, And it goes on to basically kiss Jonathan Hickman's rear end, saying what an amazing narrative it is, it alters and evolves. But yeah, yeah, this is uh, Dennis Camp kind of reaching back and saying that, oh, fictional narratives can be these memes that grow and evolve, and it can be turned into something like a virus. And he puts that into the book that's kind of part of that narrative which i think is cool right i kind of idea as a meta thing
1: i always think about like they everybody all these authors have ideas right for comics right and it's interesting to see which ones stick and like proliferate and really kind of become part of the fabric of these Mm -hmm. shared universes because a ton of them don't right (laughs) uh
0: you look at any like like, steve orlando ideas and you uh, can kind of
1: assume none of that sticks (laughs) <laughs> but
0: even the original version of Alfred, Batman's butler, he was this, you know, short, fat guy. And now we all have a picture of Alfred as being, you know, tall and thin and having certain abilities and certain personality aspects. And he's he's become, you know, solidified in the minds of fans. And many of these old stories are versions of Alfred that just didn't take.
1: So, yeah, I thought it was interesting. So, basically, the back to the ideas, you know, the children must be... Having some sort of mind virus to going out to everyone saying, "Hey, we're good. You can trust us." Yeah, they you know, don't resist. Out into the
0: street, and Cable looks around and sees that basically everybody on the street has this same mind virus, which is a spooky kind of cool way of ending it. And they're all holding these these uh, pieces of paper and there's signs around saying, "Become the future," which must be the children's slogan catchphrase right now. So yeah. Kind of neat. I don't. I wouldn't call it my favorite part of Fall of X. Again, mostly because the meta stuff feels to me like it's like it's balanced on like the edge of a knife. It could it could become just could go right off the rails to to mix my metaphors and just become it 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 could go it could go really bad. And also <laughs> just that I want to see if this were to really be integrated into Fall of X, we would see things about these children popping up in every single one of the books we read, right? It should show yeah. up in Immortal. Orcas should be talking about it. Shaw should be talking about it. Everybody in the X-Men book should be talking about it because this is the biggest thing that's happened in the world. This is bigger than what mutants did. And it feels like a sidewalk right now. We'll, I like we'll have to see, this, yeah. Like this. It really feels to me like that saber-tooth book where it's connected, but it doesn't feel like it's Completely part of the fabric of this universe. Like it, this might be one of those portions of this fictional narrative that it might not stick. Right? We could be like five years in the future, and somebody says, "Oh, hey, remember that Children of the Vault comic? Oh, yeah, I guess that was a thing. It never really went anywhere." That, that could happen. Whereas the other things feel like they're part of the main thrust, and it'd be really hard for like the Hellfire Gala to not matter in five years. Whereas something like this. It might matter. It it might just be a you know a, a side thing that people have forgotten about. I but, don't yeah, think they'll
1: right. they'll permanently solve world <laughs> hunger through this. <laughs> but yeah. I, I definitely would feel better about this if we saw references to hey this stuff's going on. Even if they don't address it in the other books, right? You could just have kind of it's on the TV or
0: something. In that the would be cool. I, I look forward to seeing that.
1: Yeah. What I would say is this story to me seems really like um, Great Morrison's New World Order story in Justice League of America. Okay. Almost identical, right? Mm-hmm. Like in that story we have this uh I forget what they're called, but basically a, a team that is evil comes back and they're all guised up to look helpful. They turn out to be a bunch of white white Martians trying to like uh-huh. take over the world. But they're trying to show up the existing heroes by solving all these problems and ending world hunger and everything and winning humanity over to them.
0: Hmm, it, it could be. Clearly Dennis Camp knows his Grant Morrison too. Okay, so yeah, art-wise, to, to finish up kind of quickly, the, the art is the art's good. It's nothing that makes me go wow, you gotta buy this for the art but uh, like I probably say too often it's like a Marvel House style but executed quite well. So, so overall, I it. what would you give this book?
1: So I'm gonna give you my my personal score is 8. I okay. loved it. My rational score is probably 7. <laughs> I would say for for most people, this is an adequate story that's worth checking out if you're at all interested in sort of time travel
0: mm-hmm.
1: or the children. Probably yeah, not es- essential
0: to the yeah, especially if you're a story. cable and or bishop fan. That's really what this book is about. I think this is probably a better book for bishop fans than that bishop. Uh, War College is training the kids. War College, yeah, War College. I think it's probably more of a bishop book than that was, even though his name's not on his title. Uh, I'm I'm hoping this turns out to be terrific. I hope it turns out to be a classic. For right now, I'm at a seven out of ten. It's it's a good book, but it's I I'm more interested in the other strands of Fall of X. And seven's okay. not bad. Seven no, is fine. It's, it's right? not a it's bad perfectly book. Perfectly I mean, adequate c- compared with some of the scores coming out of the DC podcast these <laughs> days. That would be <laughs> book of the week clearly. <laughs> I think we're all very very much looking forward to this uh, spookiest month of the year to, to finish up.
1: Okay. I was Maybe. pleasantly surprised. I'll say I, I didn't know who this writer was, and he had enough cool little things that made me think he knows this universe and um, it's going to do the children justice.
0: I hope so. And we will definitely be talking about at least issue two, for sure.
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I will probably make you talk about all the issues. if this <laughs> If this goes off the rails, I'm going to... Beg you to give it a chance. We'll talk
0: about them. I I may not have the recorder going at the time, but we will definitely talk about all the issues. while the recorder is going, I am going to move on to Immortal X-Men number 14 called Sympathy for the Scarlet Witch, written by Kieran Gillen, art by Lucas Wernick, colors by David Curiel and Eric Arseniega. I'm going to guess that uh, the second colorist is for these flashback scenes that are colored only in red. But that's just a complete guess on my part. Letters by Clayton Cowell, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So I I think we need to start talking about that title right there, Sympathy for the Scarlet Witch. And elsewhere on that same recap credits page, they have the text, No More Mutants, which is a a big phrase here. So this is definitely a reference to obviously, you know, the Scarlet Witch who said no more mutants and, you know, made most of the mutants stop being mutants. And I think I even called this out when I talked about the gala. Where Xavier has now turned into, at least in his own mind, the biggest killer of mutants of all time. Like the, the, uh, the Scarlet Witch used to be this amazing enemy in the minds of every Krakowan, and then she got redeemed. But now Xavier thinks that he has sent all these millions of mutants off to their deaths. So this is how he sees himself now, and, and Gillen leaning into that idea. <clears throat> so the rest of this book takes place in three chunks. Two of them are linked together. That's Xavier there on Krakoa and Shaw back in New York. Then there's this third chunk that seems entirely separate for now. And that's where the big twist is. So we'll we'll talk about that when we get to it. The book starts off with a really nicely done recap. I know Gillen has said that he wants to make sure that people who just, if they're only reading like the trade version of Immortal X-Men and maybe the gal is not in there, he wants people to be able to read straight through and, and not be completely lost. And I think this is done really well because it's not just a recap, it also conveys to us readers who have read the gala, Xavier's mental state now. It keeps going back and forth, like one panel of, here's something that happened, and then one panel of Xavier's face looking just shocked and just flat, like he has he's barely contacted with reality. And uh, in his newsletter, Gillen remarks that Lucas Wernick has drawn this version of Xavier with the, the scraggly beard and everything to look oddly similar to Gillen himself. And I, I know I sent you this picture. Ruben, yes, I laughed. Uh, I thought
1: it was hilarious. <laughs> I'll post it in the Slack.
0: I mean, everyone here should be joining the Slack. and you can, you Or you can Google it yourself. And yeah, that picture of Xavier there on the beach, it's Kieran Gillen. There's no two ways about it. So Charles is just stunned and beaten down to the point where he's just almost catatonic. We see bugs land on him and then fly off. He doesn't even move. Uh, and I think here, it really reminds me of how Kitty Pride reacted, right? She also has this horrible experience at the gala, and her face has changed, but she's reacting in a very active way. She wants to go out into the world and kill bad guys in hyper-violent ways, whereas Xavier here is just sticking around on Krakoa, and as we see, defending this one piece of land that he feels he has failed so badly so recently.
1: Somewhat disassociative still, though, right? Both of their behaviors.
0: Yeah, it is She's... certainly not uh, certainly not psychologically healthy. I would say either either way <laughs> to go. So now we head off to see what that turncoat Sebastian Shaw is up to. Uh, he was not at the gala, as we called out, and this scene uh, actually takes place just one day after the gala. He's there in his new office with his new assistant. Her name is Siobhan, but Shaw insists that she answer to the name Tessa. Now, did you, did that uh, name jump out at you there, there, Ruben? So. Tessa is an alias used by Sage. And this is something that uh, was called out in Ben Percy's X Force number 39 not too long ago, where Xavier maybe accidentally called Sage Tessa, or at least in a way no one understood. Now, Xavier had sent Sage, remember, nobody knows her real name, but Xavier had sent her to infiltrate the Hellfire Club, or at least Sebastian Shaw's office working as Shaw's assistant, and she went under the name Tessa back then. So I guess Shaw's kind of nostalgic for those days, and he wants his new assistant to just be called Tessa. Kind of creepy, kind of weird, kind of Shaw. So it makes sense. Now, kind of the first thing we see Shaw do here, again, one day after the gala, is he zaps himself with a version of Forge's Neutralizer, that gun that turns mutants into non-mutants, like happened to Storm back in the life-death days, and that happened to Moira just in the recent Inferno. Now, apparently, this is a requirement imposed by his, quote, new partners over at work Now, it bothered me a little bit that he did this so quickly and easily. Did that Did that bother you at all? Or did you buy it?
1: I don't know. I never thought of himself, like, hating who he was, right? But then later at the end, when he talks about his view of his, you know, powers, quote unquote, being his business acumen, maybe he just doesn't care about his mutant powers that much.
0: I can see it not being a core part of his identity, but I'm surprised that Shaw would give up any advantage without like a clear remuneration, right? He seems to put so much trust here in Orcus trust in, uh, Mother, righteous, who he made the deal with, but he just zaps his power away in a way that, as far as we know, cannot be undone. Especially now, there's no more mutant resurrection to just bring him back. So he just he, he gives away this advantage, I, I think, too easily. And also, I'm wondering, is this the very same neutralizer that was used on Moira? And if so, how did Orcus get it? And if if they can just make these things, why didn't they just zap everyone on Krakoa with neutralizers? But I guess the answer is because. That would be a boring story. Oh well. Yeah. Well, they've had those
1: tents for a while, right? Where they were like converting. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, but but they do that. It seems like a more difficult way than just zap. You're done. Yeah, a shot. Again, different different stories require different fictional ways of unmuting things. So Shaw says here, I was never really a mutant. I just had a mutant gene, and now analyzing that one line could open up all sorts of cans of worms about identity, ethnicity, group loyalty. I think I'm going to leave that alone for now because that's just a whole political thing that I think everyone can think about on their own, but it is a a pretty deep concept. I will remind everyone that Shaw's investments back in the day did help build the original Sentinels. So him being a mutant against mutants is not a new thing. So at this point, Shaw asks his new assistant, oh, by the way, how much richer am I now? Again, I think he would do this before zapping himself. Uh, remember, in Immortal Number Eleven, he made this deal with Brother Righteous, saying Krakoa is rich. If it goes down, I want it all. I want to own Krakoa. So now he thinks that with all the mutants gone, he should own all of Krakoa's financial holdings too. And apparently, that's not what happened. So he's pissed off. Monkey Puff. <laughs> yep. Yeah. He runs off to the basement of the Hellfire Club. Uh, he does that spell thing with the blood and the candles and the pentagram to summon forth Mother Righteous. Exactly why a clone of Nathaniel, what's-his-name's wife, should be summonable like a demon, I don't know what's up with that, but that could be interesting. But anyway, she does get summoned forth, or at least she chooses to come forth, and she explains that, yeah, sure, Shaw, you own the island. Presumably that's the Pacific island, not the Atlantic one that she has stowed away in her handbag. Uh, but he does he doesn't own the financial stuff, and she taunts him for being such a dumbass as to, to make a deal with a storyteller like he had never read a fairy tale before. She also points out that he broke the, quote, magic circle of the Quiet Council, which, again, I don't really buy because at the point where Shaw made his deal, the Quiet Council was already thoroughly screwed up. Right? Just think of poor Colossus. This was not a solid circle of people that that he was the first person to step out of line. Anyway, Shaw then gets his ass kicked right out of the Hellfire Club, because it seems it's been purchased, from whom I don't know, but it was purchased by one Wilson Fisk, otherwise known as the Kingpin. I gotta ask, when do you think Wilson Fisk made this purchase? We are at the day after the gala. Did Fisk just move that fast, or had he been preparing this even before the gala? What what do you think?
1: I think they're trying to tie this into... Fisk's new alliance with Kurkoa because of what he witnessed at the gala. So I think they're saying it's just maybe his first maneuver against you- Orcas, but it is, the timing is a little
0: bit of a stretch. It is, but I can buy that. The idea of Fisk as an ally of the mutants is a really nifty idea, and I, I hope it, it goes some cool place. Yeah. Underworld, also, these, underworld. these goons who throw Fisk out of the Hellfire Club—do you recognize them? They're wearing an odd outfit: these white face coverings, these purpley-blue spandex with the, the red down the front and around the neck. Who? What? What kind of goons are these?
1: Yeah, they look familiar, but I don't—I don't know who they are. I think—are they the? What oh, are they called? the something dogs. Um. Anyways, they're, I think they're like anti-mutant.
0: Oh, the, the Something Dogs, we saw them in one of the Before the Fall one-shots. Yeah. Think yeah. it's them? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Anybody out there listening who recognizes who these goons are, what their uniform is here on page 13 of Immortal X-Men number 14, please let us know because I, I got nothing. So at this point, Emma pops into Shaw's head for a moment. She's doing a lot of psychic projections all over the place these days. Uh, she's just like taunting for being such a jerk and such a dumbass. And she drops this line on him that I think is supposed to be a ha-ha, so there. The line is, I did it for the children. You did it for cents. S-E-N-T-S. Am I missing a connection somewhere? Because that line just kind of falls flat for me. But maybe maybe I just don't know what she's talking about. What did she do for the children that's parallel to what Shaw did for money? Anything?
1: (laughs) I just thought of it as some, once again, hand-waving reference to Emma's
0: Character change, being all driven by her her love of protecting children. I I guess so. They hit that that point over and over again so much, but really haven't seen her do a whole lot of child protecting recently. So it 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 feels like it should be like like uh, Gillen wrote the line like aha I got it and mm-hmm. I I don't think it, it works as well as he thinks it works. Yeah. Oh well. So uh, now on to another kind of cool data page, and this is Shaw's plan to turn his ownership of Kakoa into actual cash money, because that's what he's about. He's got uh, four stages here, starting with stage zero, secure control of the island. He says he wants to surround it with Stark sentinels. Now, what is Shaw's relationship with Orcus right now? Will they just give him these giant Stark sentinels to control his island? I'm actually curious. I don't know what his relationship is with Orcus. Yeah, is he
1: part of Orcus or not? Sort of unclear.
0: Because they used him... But I don't know that he's all that useful to them anymore. So they might just kick him to the curb and say, we're not giving you any stuff. You take care of your own problem. I'm sure we'll see more of that going forward. Stage one will be to secure various parts of the island. The top priority being the external gate because Celine wants the external gate. And Shaw says, quote, we keep Celine happy. He's definitely beholden to her. He seems like the junior partner in their little partnership. And the external gate, of course, is, made from the bones of externals, Selene being one of the externals, it's a big deal for her. After stage one is stage two to make sure the island stays asleep because if the island wakes up, it's not going to be very happy about any of this and that would be bad. Uh, Stage three is to turn the island into a factory. So I guess he wants it awake enough to do things but not like consciously awake. Kind of like a a coma situation as a metaphor maybe? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I wonder, I mean... Again, I wonder if the events of Children of the Vault are going to factor to Shaw's plan here because probably most of the stuff he would use for KoA to make, the Children of the Vault, aka Children of Tomorrow, are just given away for free anyway, so the bottom just dropped out of that market. We jump ahead to X Weeks Later, which I'm getting a little tired of in these boxes, but I think we're going to have that for a while. We're X Weeks Later on Shaw's yacht, and the first thing we learn is that Shaw is a very, very hairy man. Oh my goodness. Uh, I'd say zoom in on this, but it's, it's not very pretty. Uh, he, he almost looks like he could, he could cosplay as a shirtless Logan, maybe kind of too tall, but, uh, mm-hmm. they're probably, if you want to say who are the hairiest men in, uh, on Krakoa back when there was a Krakoa, it would have to be Logan and Shaw. They're, they're just pursuit <laughs> gentlemen. Uh, also on this yacht are, uh, some hired soldier types and new Tessa and also that aforementioned, uh, uh, I just lost her name. Celine. yes. And Selene's just kind of hanging out, sitting in the sun, but also really covered up. She doesn't want to... She likes to be pale, I think. She's doing the goth. Yep. And as Tessa, aka Siobhan, says that, yeah, we're still working on step zero here. The soldiers you send to take over the island keep running away. And soldier guy in the back says, yeah, we do... People do that because they say the place is, quote, teeming with monsters. And we'll soon learn what those monsters are. So we jump back to Charles being sad on the beach, which is his favorite thing to do. He's having another one of these psychic chats with Emma. Now, in a a CBR interview, Kieran Gillen says that he's using Emma in this arc as a, quote, telepathic Jiminy Cricket, which is a weird thing to connect Emma to. But that's what he says he's using her as and intentionally keeping her off panel. And he also refers to these telepathic chaps as a hyper- WhatsApp. Like, it's just a a chat room, but all psychic realm. Mm -hmm. Emma's trying to convince Charles that all those missing mutants, hey, they might not all be dead, right? Because Charles is just, he's so sure, he just killed everybody. And while this chat's going on, Charles senses some other minds nearby. It's it's a group of these, these goons, like the one on Shaw's yacht. And for the first time, the whole issue, Charles's expression changes. He's no longer just blank, he's really pissed off. He creates these psychic projections of four very monstery looking monsters, all horns and tusks and and way too many teeth. Now, the goons flee from the island, presumably peeing their pants at at least a little bit. So yeah, these are the monsters that the goon on Shaw's yacht talked about, and we can assume that Charles has done the same thing to landing parties at least a couple times before. Now, this would not work on Stark Sentinels, but so far, Shaw does not have any Stark Sentinels. So now we get one final scene. We are very helpfully told that it takes place nowhere and no when. Not confusing at all. So here we are in the desert, and our three on-panel characters are Exodus, Hope, and Destiny. Hey, aren't they supposed to be dead? Yeah. We thought they might be dead because we saw them go through a portal in Hellfire Night And they sure look like they're not dead, which is nice. Now, Destiny is in a bit of a panic because, as she says, I can't see. Now, Hope here, she must have hit her head on a rock or something because she goes stupid for a moment and reminds (laughs) Destiny, hey, you're blind, remember? Of course you can't see. Thanks, Hope. No shit. Okay, (laughs) Destiny, of course, means that she can't see the future. Uh, There is nothing but a white space, she says. Presumably that same blinding white nothing that she spoke of in Immortal Number 13 before the gala, so whatever happened to her, she can't see the future anymore. We thought it might be because she was going to be dead, yeah. But now we we don't know why, but it's it's some other reason. So what did what did you think of this little interaction? While I take a little sip of my tea,
1: I actually liked it. I like that they're quickly sort of clarifying that most of the mutants are not dead, and I, I didn't need that to linger like indefinitely. You know, you could see right. them dragging this out forever, and keeps the story going a lot faster. And I think it it's does. more intriguing trying to guess, like, where the heck are they? And I like the the setting. It doesn't seem like a safe place, right? They're in a horrible desert.
0: and They're in this desert. And yeah, they sense, like, up till now, we've only seen these three. But then Exodus senses a few more mutants nearby, specifically 250,000 of them. And these are the ones in the dry heat of the desert here. And yeah, we see that this isn't all the mutants. I mean, we already know that uh, Forge is all by himself somewhere else. But we how many mutants were there sent through the gates, you think? Are we probably in the millions?
1: Yeah, somewhere
0: around there. Anyway, and way they've... more than 250,000. So I guess we're supposed to think that they've just been kind of scattered to multiple places. We see this group of them here in the desert. And I don't think we see any, like, main character named X-Men types other than... Exodus, hope, and destiny. It's kind of these, you know, your civilian mutants.
1: And they specifically say the five aren't The other members of the five aren't here. Correct. And that's and interesting because Exodus had shoved all of the five through the portal.
0: Right. They went through together. So it's not even that this gate goes to point A and that goes to point B. People who went through the same gate are not in the same place. So again, we don't know what's up with the gates. But something something weird happened. I do
1: so, want to share too mm-hmm. your your observation about Forge. Yes, we know he's missing, but we also thought he knew the radio drawing gold technique. <laughs> but somehow he's missing.
0: <laughs> That's true. He doesn't remember going through the gate, does he? So, <laughs> so multiple there's some weird levels stuff going on. Is going on. Yeah. So Exodus finds himself in a desert with a bunch of lost people, and he remembers what his name is, and then he decides, hey, I'm just going to be Moses, Yeah. right? He decides yeah. he's going to lead his people. He says, listen to me, mutants. We will survive the desert. I will lead you to the promised land. Trust me. I've been here. I can do this. You're my people. Follow me. Did and this then, offend uh, you
1: or, or did you buy it?
0: I wouldn't go as far as offended, but again, when Kieran Gillen does his religious references, they're not very subtle, right? He's... He, I, I get the idea that he knows surfaces of things, and I think someone who was r- really understood either Judaism or Christianity or just the Book of Exodus in general would have been a, a little more subtle about this. Where I guess you could say, arguing the other side, hey, Exodus is not a subtle character. That's not what he does. He's a brute force. He sees this opportunity to play this role, and he plays it to the hilt without any subtlety. So I, I I could go that way, but I I do hope that. Again, this is another way where, just like metafictional things can go bad very quickly, religious metaphors can go bad very quickly, and I, I hope it doesn't.
1: He's powered but, by belief too, right? So getting everyone to buy into him as mutant Moses, an
0: excellent point. Some powers, yeah. I, I hope we don't see you know commandments and a golden yeah. calf and a pillar yeah. of fire and a pillar of cloud. I don't, I thought I hope we I don't go too far there.
1: This level of you know nodding to religious. Similarities was okay, but it could definitely go into the offensive territory <laughs> if he yeah. goes up and, and sees a burning bush. I yeah, will, I, I, I'm i reminded it will of that, that famous eyes.
0: line in Seinfeld where a, a dentist converts to Judaism so he can tell Jewish jokes. And Jerry says, I'm not offended as a Jew, I'm offended as a comedian. If anything, I'm slightly on the edge of being offended as a comic book reader just because, as a storyline, this could go lame. I'm not offended as as a religious person. Put it that way.
1: But I would say in like a in a survival situation, having somebody step up and take charge is always helpful, right?
0: Yeah. And like you said, I'm super glad to see we're not going to let the the are they all dead question linger any further. They're not dead. They're just in various strange places, and here's one big chunk of them. And Exodus is putting himself in charge of keeping them alive and presumably trying to get them back up with everybody else and get them back home, which I guess that's going to take place in this book. We've we've seen other storylines break out into their own little mini-series, but I think that the the story of this quarter million mutants led by Exodus, I think that's going to be a main storyline for the next few issues, at least, of Kieran Gillen's Immortal. Now, on the villain side, I, I really do want to see what becomes of Shaw. He's tried to play both sides, and he thought he had played it just right. He thought he was on top of the world and he's gotten what he wanted and it's not what he wanted, which is a fun place for him to be. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how he tries to maneuver in this new world where he realizes, oh, he's kind of on the bottom again. Uh, I, I'm curious to find out what Celine wants. I really don't understand her character at all. She shows up and wants people to tell her how important she is. But I don't know what she really wants other than the external gate. So I'm I'm hoping her character gets kind of fleshed out. Yeah, I I think all the externals are dead,
1: and I don't know if she wants to bring them back.
0: Well, externals kind of bring themselves back. Isn't that a thing? I guess maybe it takes a little while. Like, she would have brought herself back eventually if Mother Righteous hadn't done it. But I guess the other externals are still currently dead. So maybe maybe that'll be her thing. She wants to get them back. I'm, I'm really curious to see what goes on with Wilson Fisk. Uh, I loved what Chip Zdarsky did with that character in Daredevil, and I hope that he's used you know, even halfway as well now that he's over on the X side of things. Because so he is—he's a character who's really I thought was just kind of a one-note villain for a while, but he's been made into much more in, in recent years, and I hope that uh, continues. The other thing is, you know, Lucas Wernick art—I praise every issue. He always deserves it. This time, I'm going to call attention to—I've uh, seen it called in art circles talking about his acting which clearly he's not the one acting things out physically but the way he finds just the right pose and just the right facial expression to convey each character's kind of inner world which is is really cool because you can look on the faces even of this last page you see the determination on exodus's face and you see the kind of fear and concern on on hope and destiny behind him and you see this one flying young boy mutant. Who's just kind of confused. And all these little stories, we don't have to have any words in their mouths to explain it. We can see it on the page. And I think Wernick just adds so much texture to the story, and he's, 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 he's huge to why this book is so good. Now, that said, Paco Medina is going to be the artist for the next issue of, of Immortal. He's really good, too. Uh, Lucas Wernick, again, I, I praise him effusively. He's probably my favorite. Uh, Medina, we we saw do a lot of good stuff in... Sins of Sinister in that storyline. And he did the Sinister Four issue in the, the lead up to Fall of X. So he's he's also really good too. So, and then we're next going to be back for issue 16. But to wrap up an overlong uh, discussion, of this one issue, a cool issue, a worthy addition to the Fall of X. I had my questions and criticisms along the way. But I'm going to give this a nice solid eight out of 10. How about you?
1: Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to put it more of the seven five for me. There were a lot of things okay. that did kind of irk me, but there's a lot that's really interesting here, mm-hmm. and it does set up more stories and made me happy to think that Immortal could go on for a little bit longer. I was afraid
0: this would be like, oh, this is the end
1: of the Immortal storyline.
0: Yeah, that's true. We thought Gillen might be wrapping things up, but there sure seems like he is setting the scene for at least a, you know, a, a good, solid arc before anything comes to a close, which is nice because you know, we like his writing. Okay, before we talk about next week, I have a suggested viewing for all you listeners. I just happened to watch the movie Akira the other night, which it's, you know, it was out in 1988, and I think I'm an anime guy, so somehow I had never gotten around to to watch it. It is one of the most famous anime movies ever, but better late than never. And it turned out to be, you know, first off, even more epic than I expected. The I knew it was all about motorcycle gangs and just watching them, in this dystopian future, drive around and fight. And just the look of the animation is super high end, super top notch. It looks so cool. It is very, very violent. Lots of blood, lots of people's faces getting smashed in. So, you know, not not for the kiddies. Don't show it to people after watching like the new, even the, the new Spider-Man animated movie. This is way beyond that in terms of violence. But if you're a grown up and you like cool animation, Akira is really good. And also, it has kind of an X-Men vibe. Uh, some of the characters have these abilities that I was not expecting going in. So if you're an X-Men fan or an animation fan, you can stream Akira currently on Hulu or rent it or find it various other places. No, Ruben, we might say for suggested reading, you could talk about, uh, it was that, uh, that Grant Morrison, you call it, was it New World Order JLA? Yes.
1: Yep. Uh, it's basically the if you get the Grant Morrison Justice League of America okay. trade it's the very first story and it's one of my all-time favorite
0: okay. uh, i will definitely check justice it out justice league stories awesome so that's a lot of fo- things for people to do before next week and next week we have one continuing favorite title and three count them three new fall of x number ones to check out the, the continuing favorite is x-men red number 14 where i guess we're going to hear all about the beginning of the genesis war We saw that was kind of already going on in the gala issue, so that's got to happen now. And then the number ones are Dark X-Men number one by Steve Fox, Alpha Flight number one by Ed Brisson. And it does have Fall of X trade dress on the cover, so it is a Fall of X book, even though it's Canadian. Uh, And uh, Uncanny Avengers number one, those are all five issue minis. And the first issue of all of them comes out next week. So we will have lots of talk about then. But uh, until then, Ruben, what, what might our listeners do to keep themselves occupied?
1: <laughs> well, they can do what I'm going to do, which is read more X-Men comics. And in particular, I'm going to try to speed read the Messiah Complex and Messiah War storylines, because those are kind of gaps in my knowledge.
0: And I'm going to see how bad Bishop became. Fantastic! Read those books, watch some anime, and read more X-Men.